I don't know if we've mentioned this before, but the 1960s were a turbulent time in America. You know, Vietnam, women's lib, dogs and cats living together. It was a crazy time. But the emergence of Satanism in the 60s isn't something that's come up before in Toasting the Classics. Ira Levin's novel, Rosemary's Baby, and the film adaptation by Roman Polanski tapped into a strange new current in American life. While some people were indulging themselves in the typical pleasures of a decadent civilization, others took it a bit farther and dove straight into practicing the black arts. Rosemary's Baby tells the story of a young woman who falls into the hands of a dark cult. Betrayed by her own husband and gaslit into a state of paranoia, Rosemary fights a psychological battle against dangerous mystical powers. This film is a thriller, an arthouse tour de force, and a symbolic reification of a fraught moment in history. It just might also be responsible for the satanic panic that made its toxic intrusion in American life over the next few decades. There's quite a bit to unpack in this one, so we thought we'd fix up a batch of the Castavet's favorite cocktail, the Vodka Blush, and discuss the harrowing events at the Dakota. It's time for episode 91 of Toasting the Classics, Rosemary's Baby. Welcome to Toasting the Classics, the podcast where you take something that people call a classic, and in this case, I've actually seen things online literally calling this a classic, so I think it's bona fide. We take something that people call a classic, we drink something that's inspired by the classic, and then we talk about it and decide whether it's actually going to be a classic. I think this was kind of solely my pick this time, and I just kind of drafted you guys <laughs> as it came up. Well, and told us. Yep. Because <laughs> uh, it was kind of a last minute thing. So what I picked was Rosemary's Baby, the film, the 1968 film. I happened to have read the book about a month ago. Uh, oh, I was wow. just on my list of books to read. And then I go through every now and then if I want to watch a movie and I figure something that's put on my list. And this is like, I don't know if this is my wife's favorite movie, but it's she watches it over and over again. Not 100% sure what the reason is. Maybe we could talk about it as we go. Yeah, so I, I put this on. We watched it together. I was taking notes during the movie. Um, and so... I wanted to talk about it. I figured I'm watching a supposedly classic movie. Why not sit down and chat about it? Who I got uh, some some uh, friends with me this week, drafted from the bullpen. I got Chris Gregg. Say hi. Hello. Yes. And Kevin Doyle. Kevin. Hello. So, what did you guys think? What What do we watch? Anybody want to do a synopsis? How do we want to jump into it? Well, I mean, do we do we want to talk about Polanski first? I mean, we can't avoid talking about Polanski. <laughs> so, uh, well, just in case, I mean, this is a movie that's what 50 years old, more than 50 years old. 50, Over. Yeah, more than 55 years old already. So this is a pretty old movie. So a lot of people might not be familiar with it. Uh, does anybody want to give a shot at the synopsis? I'm happy to do it. But if somebody wants to stretch their vocal apparatus some. Chris always <laughs> does a, a bang up job of doing the synopsis. <laughs> never, wanders, never wanders <laughs> off track. <laughs> I'll try and keep it somewhat brief this time because okay. I think at, at heart, it's a fairly straightforward movie. Uh, much, it's a movie yeah. about a woman who is gaslit by everyone when she moves into a new apartment building in new york her husband her neighbors her doctor her original doctor pretty much everyone with the exception of her close friends and her big family which for some reason don't make any appearance in the movie which is kind of weird um, oh uh if you read the novel it's because she's just estranged from her family completely she, they oh, live, okay. they live in like Catholic anymore or something. She's not Catholic anymore. They live in Omaha or something. And she calls, she has a couple of phone calls with her sister who she's still in touch with, but otherwise she's just, and this movie, by the way, normally I would say that the novel is not evidence of what's going on in the movie, but this movie is spitting image of the book. I didn't see almost any departures at all. You know, I've heard that and I've heard some interesting reasons why. And I've also heard that the movie is really different from the book in some ways because the book has kind of a surprise ending, whereas the movie really foreshadows 
what's going to happen. And the horror that comes in is really because you know what's happening and she doesn't. No, I think it's so I, I would say now I kind of knew what was going on. So maybe that's not the right take on it. But I, it seemed to be about the same level of, you know, what's going on through the book and the film. OK, like there's there's clues there. Not not just clues, but she's starting to suspect what's going on all along. It, it seemed obvious to me when I was reading the book. I don't know. Like I said, I did kind of know what was going to happen in the book so it's kind of hard to judge but it didn't seem like a big secret to me although you know what this wasn't as common of a plot back then this this book slash movie is where this idea comes from this idea yeah. of, and i guess spoiler alert but it's 55 years old the idea of satanists and being involved with children and stuff this is where this comes from yeah this is the the urtext not just for that but i think yeah. for a lot of modern horror well, oh, satanism I, was kind of a thing at this time too like you know, Satanism is definitely a thing at this time, yeah. And it's, Tom LeVay it's not even published the Satanic Bible the year after this. I mean, there were all the it started all the mm -hmm. Church of Satan. Church of Satan was founded in 1966, which is two years before this movie. Right. So this right. is part of the zeitgeist, uh, big time. Yeah. It's not even just its influence on film or, or books or anything. Ira Levin actually talked about in the foreword that I read to the book, talked about being sorry he'd done this movie to some extent because of things like the satanic panic in the early eighties and just like all the harm that ended up doing and, and getting that, getting that out there in the world um, came from his work in a way. This is just an imaginative book that he wrote. I don't, it doesn't have anything to do with reality. Let's perhaps try and finish up the synopsis real quick. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> sure. She is gaslit into being the mother of the antichrist. And mm -hmm. that's how the movie ends. Satan's son is born. She is explicitly the mother uh, and has talked into raising him, question mark, and the movie ends. But so you're saying, I'm, I'm leaving out a lot there, but oh, most yeah. is... The high concept is pretty simple, like you said. Yep. Pregnant woman... Oh, no, she's not even pregnant to start the movie, but she's thinking about having a child. She thinks everybody around her has fallen into a basically like a satanic cult, and then that ends up being the truth. And that's it's really about the execution, because the movie's psychological. It's slow. It's thematic. It's dealing with feminism and and shifting morals in the 1960s and I, I think the twist though was that she thought that it was her baby was going to be sacrificed and she didn't really connect that it was going to be born and it was going to be you know the antichrist or whatever until that very last scene you know i think that you know that last scene where she's you know essentially accepts the offer to to be the mother it doesn't really say it but like that it's almost open-ended there at the end where she you know, kind of accepts the role and kind of the, the gaslighting is complete, or at least the, the brainwashing or the mind breaking is complete. You know, she's totally lost herself. To it's a way of asserting herself though, right? She has no power over the situation. Otherwise she's tried everything at her disposable to try to establish power. And the only way she can get it, maybe this is a little more talked about actually in the novel, but basically the, the only way she sees being able to have any influence over this child in the future is by, is by agreeing to be the mother. So she decides to go ahead and just be the Mary to the, you know, to the Antichrist, which by the way, I didn't intend this to be appropriate for Christmas, but it turns out it is in a weird sort of, in a weird sort of twisted way. I guess, way. yeah. I, and I New Year's. I out, but I guess that New Year's, the yeah. opposite no. of Christmas. You're right. I didn't think. Yeah, no, no. I think Chris said something about that when I, he was like, oh, that's appropriate for Christmas. And I was like, whoops, I didn't mean that. It was just happened to be what movie I was watching. But then as I was watching the birth of Satan part, I was like, oh, there's kind of a nativity at the end of the movie. So it's kind of, 
weirdly bizarrely perfect so what would the church of satan call that an anti-nativity or something um, i don't know it's still a nativity nativity just means a birth so i don't know who are the three wise men satanic nativity oh the three well the japanese guy must yeah. be one of them right? the arab guy probably and there's a couple of other i'm trying was there somebody else there other four i thought there was an arab guy that came in at one point mm-hmm. they didn't they don't actually introduce these people they just sort of show up no no they're just there i i kind of like it when movies do that and sort of just throw things at you because i think that's one of the reasons why my wife rewatches this movie is because it rewards rewatching there's clues oh very the much so. there's uh there are a lot of little subtle things like when her husband guy and that's his actual name he's just a guy uh, <laughs> right, husband, right leaves the apartment she goes over to the window and doesn't see him leave but here's the the doorbell ring next door that's an interesting thing to talk about when do you think the husband bought in to the satanic uh ritual i think he genuinely has no interest in meeting these old people in the first time when they go over the time when the time when by the way they have a vodka blush as a drink which is what we have for the show today i think i found the same uh recipe that kevin did but kevin you can go ahead and tell everybody what's in a vodka blush because you were the one Um, it's the definitely one of those recipes where you have to get down to the whole bottom of the web page before the person stops telling you their life history and gets to the (laughs) it's only four ingredients but it ends up being like a six or seven hundred word uh recipe but yeah yeah it's it's basically mostly vodka with some uh, dash of grenadine right a right. couple of drops of uh, fresh lemon juice. Did you not use lime? Oh, I'm sorry, lime. You're right. Okay. My apologies. I don't know if it matters, but I did use lime. That's actually why I, I was a little bit. None of these ingredients. All I had was vodka. So mix it with <laughs> Yeah, me too. Me too. Lemon seltzer. And that's what I got. <laughs> oh, I actually had grenadine, fortunately, because I went around to the stores and it's in New York, if if you don't know exactly what you're looking for, you just can't get it because nobody at the grocery store speaks English, not one single person. So you're like, um, can I get grenadine? And you're like trying to describe what grenadine is in, in some way. And I'm like, oh, my God, like this person's not even going to know what a pomegranate is if I, if I get the concept across. And apparently, there's a rule in New York. You can't sell mix mixers at the liquor store. Oh, weird. I don't. I'm like, why on earth? Probably because it encourages deviant drinking or some some such nonsense. It might be an economic thing. It might be just to not steal away from the steal away. No, from there's the, no way that that sounds like the the equivalent of a Sunday law in New York City, which yeah. is why a lot of hotels were originally established. I thought they were established so that people could sleep somewhere while they're traveling. It, no, in New York originally uh, there was a a law passed that said you could not serve alcohol unless you also served food. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Places where you would have a, I, I can't remember the name, but there was a, like a sandwich and they would put the sandwich on the plate and then put the plate in front of them and serve alcohol. And they would just rotate the same sandwich around the same people for about a oh, week. Weird. I mean, there's always like a little rack of chips. People always have like a little rack of chips behind the counter at a bar. It's like a $5 pack of, of party mix. Yeah. I wonder if that's a holdover from the same law. That'd be really interesting. Actually. I think so. That That was always my take on it. Yeah, exactly. Had you had either of you guys seen this movie before? I had not. I, no. I thought I had, and and I think I was confusing it with some Vincent Price film because uh, this was much be. uh, much better than I thought it was going to be. I thought this was going to be campy. I thought that this uh, you know there was a camp element. This was actually very serious, very well structured, very very well done. It wasn't like a campy B horror. This, no. this this was. This was actually done by uh, Castle Productions, the same company that did a lot of those famous schlocky horror movies. But right. when they put it together, they specifically had a clause that said that they could 
produce but not direct the film. And Roman Polanski adapted the film from the book, wrote, wrote, so wrote the, the screenplay. screenplay. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and the screenplay was about the same length as the novel, actually, at least the original. It was about 250 pages. And I think the novel might even be a little bit shorter than that. It's not a long novel at all. So that's why it seems really faithfully adapted, if, if, if you ask me. And then also, I think he was just a very auteur director. Uh, he's even fr he's from Europe. He's I mean, when would the I guess Kubrick was working in America before this, obviously. But he's in that same vein. Like he's really taking the project very seriously. Have you seen other movies he's done at this time? I've never seen any of the European stuff. Obviously, I've seen Chinatown. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think it's important to note that Chinatown is post Manson murders. Yeah. And this film is pre Manson murders. Well, like yeah. by a year. This happened yeah. the year before. Year. And it, right. the similarities, too, between. There's got to be a connection. Sharon Tate is in this movie. She's not pregnant, she but she's already his fiance. She was she pregnant, gets pregnant. She was killed, you know, and is murdered by Satanists. Yeah, at least to some degree, That's... the Manson family are Satanists. Murdered by Satanists within a year of the of this, maybe in 1970. There's, there's a lot of weird stuff that about this uh, about this film. John Lennon was shot and killed in the place right. where at the Dakota. That was so the, at the, the Dakota, the, which is which is the yeah, the apartment building in the movie is called the Bramford. But the Bramford uh, in the book, they actually say, oh, maybe you should consider living at the Dakota instead, because it's the Bramford is a fictional building. The Dakota is a famous building. It's actually I could walk there after we get done with the podcast. It's, it's right down the west side. John Lennon was shot, like ran into the vestibule of the Dakota after being shot and I think pretty much died in the, the entrance to the Dakota, which is the building that the exteriors were done. I don't know. I meant to look it up, but I'm not sure whether the interiors were actually shot. At the Dakota, I don't think so. Uh, That's where Chavit's father died. Like the same spot is essentially where it's just it's weird. There were um where who Cavett, Mr. Cavett, the older gentleman. I can't remember his first name. I thought it was where the uh, the original house guest jumped off the building was very close to where John Lennon was shot. Oh yeah, yeah, that um, would be the same. Yeah, that would be the corner right there, basically. Yeah, it's like. Right on the corner of, uh, it's either 71st or 72nd Street. And it's right there where it is on Central Park West. And that's where um, the Italian girl, they find her in the movie. And that's pretty much where Lennon, Lennon probably died in the taxi or in the ambulance. But, you know, that's where he was shot. Did you, so, uh, did you spot William Castle in the movie? I don't know what William Castle looks like. No, who, who was he? You know, when she's in the phone booth and the guy with oh, the, the guy that comes the, up and the cigar comes up. up that's looks what, like Henry Kissinger standing outside oh, of the phone booth. Yeah, he, he got some yes. sort of uh, health issues. Actually, Polanski had went into some coma. There, there was all these. They called the movie Curse. Uh, Polanski had the whole Manson thing. Exactly. The music director uh, fell, uh, went into a coma and passed away after. Oh, OK, so that's kind of like a. Howard Carter and King Tut's tomb sort of thing. There's like some some bad stuff befalling the people who are on the on the production. Okay. Well, you know, they, yeah. they all felt like they released this this maybe this bad thing into the world and, and they were Well, they know. did a little bit, right? Kind of did in a way, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, if you think about it, like we said, it was out there. Like Satanism was definitely a thing in the culture at the time. Uh, I mean, obviously not a dominant thread in the culture at the time we were talking about this if we said everybody said the antichrist right but don't they in this don't they believe there is no god i mean they were they were down they they were downplaying the catholic church and the pope i, I think god that, is dead 
Yeah, well, you could probably write a thesis on that. There's the whole God is dead thing that comes up several times. Um, right, it was God is dead, not necessarily that he's uh, doesn't exist. It's just that he's dead or he's... Yeah, because you're right, the Time magazine that came up, God is dead. It was, yeah, it was a thing at the time. Which I, apparently I was misled by Elton John, who said the New York Times said God was dead. Apparently it was Time magazine. It seemed to me like at the end, though, that they said something about you know, that God was just a superstition. And I'm like, but, but you believe in Satan? How could you believe in, why is one of those beliefs more reasonable to you than the other? Well, you can't right? have Satan without God, right? I, mean, I don't think so. I mean, I guess you could. How do you get to that point? I don't really understand that, but. Right. Um, I read it more as them making fun of uh, the Pope, which makes total sense for a Satanist to do. Yeah, that I get. That I, I mean, I get how somebody who was a dyed in the wool Christian might make fun of the idea of the Pope. They call them Protestants. There's, there's a lot of those people. So, so, so that first meal uh, where they're eating steak, did y'all find that a little sus? Yeah, and it's bad, right? She's a bad cook. They talk well, about it, that. Maybe well, I think that might have something to do with a feminist statement, yeah. or, or almost actually, I take it back, like an anti-feminist statement, because the woman who's a Satanist and who is a, you know, committed feminist older woman has no idea how to cook well there's like a patriarchal theme like poor poor rosemary i mean like she's told she's gaslit you know by everyone mm -hmm. she's she has no control over anything she's kept from all of her friends this one time she does meet up with her friends you know it turns into like this huge fight with with uh, her and her husband afterwards mm -hmm. and it just throws her into deeper isolation from the world and then yeah and then when she finally gets away she goes to the doctor who actually, I don't think he started to believe her story, but he could tell that something clearly was up. But instead of helping her, he reaches out to her husband, brings her back into the fold. How did you guys perceive that conversation with the doctor? Did you perceive that he was listening to her and believing her? Or did you know he was going to turn on her? I, I knew he was going to turn on her. It, I didn't necessarily think that she was going to turn on her. I, I didn't think that he was like part of the part of the machinations. I, I he was clearly he wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't. Yeah, no, he was he clearly separate to. from the you know, like the whole cult thing. But um, he's he's just part of the society that that basically views a woman's health as the purview of her husband, essentially. Right. Which, is, right. which bizarre. Might have been that was the time. No, it absolutely was the law. I don't know. I mean, guys, you know, like it wasn't until the 80s where women could get a credit card um, without permission. Yeah, that that's definitely true. I'm not 100% sure that that law about a woman's doctor visits was a, was true yet, especially in a place like New York in the late 60s. But yeah, it definitely was the law in a lot of places. Boy, I don't really want to get into this too much, but it's why the abortion debate is such a trigger for a lot of people. To, to me, it was I never really understood it. I'm like, what are you? Who's trying to control your body? What are you talking about? But it's like literally this was the situation when like Betty Friedan was a young woman, you know. So there's a reason why right. she thinks in this way. Maybe it's, I guess it's a little bit of um perspective for people. I, I guess too. I, I remember my mom talking about this film and The Exorcist, and you know just how she was terrified of both. But in some ways, how this scared her more because it tapped into that fear of your baby, fear of your husband, yeah. fear of your you know like you know just just. And you have no control over this this whole circumstance that that is just it's like it should be this wonderful moment and it's just totally turned on itself. I didn't even think about. I was thinking of the feminist aspect of it, like with men trying to control your life, right? right. But there's also the aspect of obviously none of us understands this because we're not women, but getting pregnant and then having a baby, I could see as feeling like a situation where you're like on a roller coaster ride and you can't get off. And it's like a, in some ways, kind of a terrifying thing that's coming and happening to you. And 
you have no control over the situation essentially it's like this magic thing happening inside your body that you know and then all of a sudden there's a there's a baby and you're you have all these responsibilities and that's just biological reality if you see what i mean that's just what it's like and and not to mention it used to be something that probably that had a good chance of killing you which we, again we don't deal with in today's world as much but there is a concerted effort by everyone in this woman's life to lie to her and mm -hmm. take away her ability to choose which yeah. is pretty terrifying and and the fact that they have the ability to commit her to an insane asylum if they had wanted to or, or, or various other power over her uh, to drug her, to send her to doctors she didn't want to go to, uh, not send her to doctors she wanted to go to because they, they would withhold payment. Uh, That's an interesting question. I, I, so I've been through some of the process with um, involuntary commitments, right? Like I've defended people in those processes before, and I'm trying to think whether someone who came in saying the things Rosemary is saying, I think you'd have like a 50-50 chance of getting committed even today, involuntarily. If you were talking about my husband's a Satanist. My neighbors are Satanists. My baby might be the Antichrist. I think I think somebody might be able to say, well, she might hurt her baby. Or That's hurt her who husband. I thought the doctor was going to call was was a psychiatric ward or something and have her right. to, to a psychiatric hospital. So they basically didn't do that. And they probably still don't today do that very often to wealthy white women. Basically, that would be something if you were in the lower classes. Yeah, you probably would end up in a in a in a ward somewhere. Yes, if you're rich, you're eccentric. It's a. It's if a, you're rich, you're eccentric. Well, and also you have lots of um. What's the word I'm looking for? Lots of resources. Money. Yeah. Well, yeah. Re but not just money. Resources in general. People that would look out for you. Places you could stay. You know, things like that. Yeah. That's one thing you notice when you see people who are mentally ill and on the street is that it's that safety net, the personal family safety net that most people have. Right. Most people have that. You end up on the street if you don't have that. There's no mom's house to go oh, sleep. On this is this is before Geraldo Rivera, you know, had that whole expose on. He wasn't the first to do that. There were a lot of there were people. But um, that's where they that's where they put a lot of people then. And then they totally did. did that. That did um, somebody Bly. There is a, some her name is Bly. Last name is Bly. She went under she went undercover and basically went to the mental yeah. hospital here on Theodore Roosevelt Island and like did a big expose about what they were doing to people there. And I think. That was sort of going on over the course of the 20th century. People were like, whoa, they're just dumping these people into snake pits, essentially. And Probably put her in something like that if she couldn't have, wasn't a, you know, rich white woman. But, if she didn't have means. Now, that's another question, though. Are they rich? I don't know how rich they well, are. Well, I guess they're not. No, I mean, right? like, an apartment I mean, they're, in New York today would, would cost, you know. Oh, forget millions. about it. <laughs> right. forget, well, first of all, you'd have to buy it. You couldn't rent a place like that. Right. So, I mean, to live at the Dakota... Yoko Ono just sold her place there right. like three right. weeks ago or a month ago or whatever. Right. So, I mean, I, I would think each unit's got to cost $20 million or something. Today, to $20 yeah. Million sure, today. But... You know, and they're renting the place, although it's a fictional building. And I guess it was sort of meant to look kind of old. I guess they were kind of getting a deal on a place because it looked old and sort of antique. Today, that they would did, be, it'd be worth They did more. mention rent control. And of course, the council of unit owners that are trying to rent it out are looking for very specific applicants, I would imagine. Oh, okay. So you think they're sort of handing down the rent control to them? Would all yeah, they're being shown around by the real estate agent. He mentions that, you know, they would charge more if they were allowed to. You you probably wouldn't believe it, but there are people today. I have a friend who lives right down the road, has a place right on the park, third floor right on the park, looking out onto the park. And I think I don't think they pay more than two thousand a month for it. 
because it's like locked in. He's been living there since the mid nineties and the, the rent hasn't changed. So, I mean, that does still exist to some extent, maybe to people who live in Virginia, $2,000 a month doesn't sound like a deal, but it's a deal. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, from where that is. Yeah. So back to the first question, the most important betrayal is the husband. When do you think he definitely makes that choice? I think it's when he goes and he's having a good time talking to the old guy. I think the old guy kind of charms him on the first visit. And then he goes back and has another conversation with them without her. Yes. And that's the next night at. or a couple nights yeah. later or something like that. It, it was kind of unclear to me. I actually had to talk to my wife. I was like, did I miss that scene? Did that happen off camera? Did I walk out and go to the bathroom or what? Well, no, I think you're exactly right. I think that's it. And there's a lot of supporting evidence for it. Well, okay. nothing happens outside of her perspective, right? You don't see anything but Rosemary. That is a really good question. Is that there true? Is, there the is nothing that happens without her there. Um, basically just the opening and closing shots where you get the overhead of the, the building itself. Right. That's right. it. But she's, she's, and it's, you know, they're really, that was one thing that struck me is they, they don't ever take it off for, they always have some cut where she's always in the picture almost like, there isn't like one scene where she's not some part of, of the setup for, you know, for the shot. I think it's almost like, well, I mean, it's based on a novel, right? The novel novel has a modified form of third person perspective where if you know what I mean, it's like, it's technically sort of sounds like a third person omniscient, but it's just that character's perspective from the third person omniscient. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? It's like, so. It sounds like things are being described that aren't real. It's kind of like seeing the apartment building from up high. Mm. It's like that perspective. You know, she technically can't see what the building looks like from on top, but it's literally just following her. It's not, you don't know what anybody else is thinking. Right. Um, you're privy to what she's thinking constantly. So I think that kind of makes sense that the film was sort of done that way because it was done quick too. I mean, I think the movie was optioned before the book was even published. Oh. And I think Polanski was working wow. on, but the book was published in 67. Polanski was working on the script like right away. As soon as he read the book, he was like, I'm doing this, put it together. And I think they started filming it like immediately. It was a very fast turnaround. So it's, it's, it, it's not a big departure from the book. I mean, there are, are not a lot of complicated sets or much of anything no. to worry about. It's, it's a very claustrophobic movie, especially for the first three quarters of it. It all takes place on interior shots until they, she goes outside, I think, twice in the movie. Yeah, she goes she goes around the city a little bit. Um, it would be very hard to film a movie like this today. Like, maybe impossible. I don't, I don't think you could get... Although, they did um, Only Murders in the Building, which is at another fancy apartment building not too far from the Dakota, and they managed to, they managed to film that recently. They got the exteriors and things like that. So, I don't know. Maybe it's possible. If you can do it for a TV show, you could certainly do it for a movie. A fair amount of that was done during the pandemic. She walks across the street and all the cars are stopping in front of her. Right. Uh -huh. That was not planned. That is her and Roman Polanski walking across the street after him telling her nobody would hit a pregnant woman. Right. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. That was pretty funny. What do you guys know about Roman Polanski's? We talked a little bit about it, but is there anything other than it's pretty much Chinatown and Rosemary's mm -hmm. Baby? Macbeth. The version of Macbeth was done right after his his wife was killed and it's um it's intense it's very bloody okay. um it's uh very i mean it's a dark you know it's a dark play but i mean yeah. it's, it's you know, brutal in a lot of ways it's the brutality of it it's very brutal and if you if you get a chance to check it yeah, out speaking you know, and like speaking of things that are cursed right 
Speaking of productions that are cursed, the guy's doing Macbeth also. Maybe maybe he was like, you know what? Nothing worse could possibly happen to me. <laughs> let's, right. let's go for it. <laughs> let's, let's do the Scottish play next. Right. Well, you know, he must have felt cursed at some you know, at some point. But I, and I don't know if you know the details of, you know, Sharon Tate's death, but. I read Helter Skelter. So, yeah, uh, yeah to some extent. You know? right. And I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Which I guess I mean, has a different ending, obviously. You were told to be brutal, you know, by men. Yeah. yeah, and and I guess that sort of segues into uh, not really a curse for him; it's his own doing. But the, the you know the accusations that led to him basically having to escape the country because apparently people in Europe look more favorably upon drugging children and and essentially, I guess, you know, raping them. I guess for for lack of a better word. Yes, giving well, to a thirteen-year-old girl and. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I I sort of had heard about that story when I was a kid. And I honestly, I don't know who told me the story. They may have couched it this way, but I thought that there was some aspect of it that was like Americans are really puritanical and what happened wasn't a big deal. And I, re I read the story. I was like, what do you, that's not, that that's not okay in any country. That's not Americans being puritanical. There's well, a, I mean, Bill Cosby it, got away with it for a long time. Bill Cosby got away with it, but no, that's because nobody knew about it. Nobody was not, like, I'm not okay. by any means defending it, but. The apparently the victim did come out and speak and say that there it was consensual to a degree, but she was so young. Um, I'm not that's not an excuse by any means. Uh, he's a horrible, terrible man, and and uh, but I think that what it is is it was viewed as an older man being with an extremely younger, which which probably I, would I, be okay. I, I feel dirty European countries, by the way. I I, I think that the because I remember what you're saying too. I, I do remember when I was younger hearing that, yeah, it was, it was the, he went, he went to, I think he went to France and France has, you know, it was just this other way to kind of dog on France and say that France, you know, has these right. open ideas about whatever. And um, yeah, there, there's, there, there's just a lot of uh, weird shady stuff that did happen there. And he clearly, clearly raped her, but it, it's not as cut and dry as, pedophilia and, and rape and all that i mean it yeah. pretty close to cut yeah i mean I it, 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 yeah, yeah. I, I, she was 42 <laughs> at the time and she was 13 it's uh yeah. it, it's yeah. it's i'm not yeah i'm not doing a good so job what's his, it. what's his filmography what's what are asking this question by way of coming to a conclusion on is his body of work good enough to continue to interact with it despite you know what we know about this person because i know people love chinatown i've seen it several times it kind of I mean, Jack Nicholson's great in it. Like he's the force of nature in it, I think. But I don't love that movie. Um, it's good. I don't know. I, I absolutely do. I think Chinatown's a, a nearly perfect movie. Okay. Okay. It's one of those ones I want to keep coming back to every once in a while. It's it's kind of like eating olives. Like I know everybody else likes them, <laughs> so I try them every once in a while, and then I'm and then I'm like, oh no, I still don't like olives. So I'll watch Chinatown again at some point, and you know maybe. I mean, there's the pianist. There's the Ninth Gate. Um, Ninth Gate, which, by the way, I we keep bringing up the Frank Langella connection to my apartment. Speaking of Satanists living in your New York apartment, Frank Langella used to sleep in this room, so that's kind of weird. So I'm glad you brought that up because that is actually the connection with that we had talked about previously uh, off the podcast. Okay, uh, Frank Langella was going to be the original star of the Fall of the House of Usher, but he was fired for being a sex pest. And uh, what is what's the what distinguishes a sex pest from 
mostly grabbing people on set, uh, telling oh, okay. color jokes, making people generally uncomfortable, uh, okay. regaling the stories of his own experiences. Yeah, probably some of which happened right here in this room. That's that's great, lovely. That's something. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's what made me kind of laugh when you picked this movie. I know it's your wife's favorite movie, and you're living in yeah. there. You're yeah. you're in a kind yeah. of way like an out of out of state couple moving to New York into a uh, into an apartment yep. with a checkered past. You know, it's, it's you just go, kind of yeah. Fun. I know, I know. Kevin, you you mentioned that your mom was, um, I would say, a big fan of this movie and The Exorcist. I mean, if you're scared of a horror, she, was, movie, she wasn't a fan. It was it was it was the opposite. It was like one of those things where, why did I see it that terrified me for, Oh, okay. You know, okay. It just, like it had a deep impact. Um, but it was, it was a, it was a big hit at the time. I mean, it, it grossed, it was like the, Oh, it was huge. It was, huge. It was like yeah. the fourth highest grossing film that year. And clearly was, I was think this movie why your mom wouldn't let you become a Satanist. <laughs> <laughs> what percentage uh, of moms would be okay with, kid being a satanist let's be honest i mean yeah, even, even our moms our moms don't are actually like, worship don't... satan you know it's it's uh <laughs> no i think i think, I think and this this movie <laughs> was even a... let, let you listen to kiss right that's well what... they are knights they are knights in satan's no kiss no slayer <laughs> i think this movie was a big hit but it led to the really monster runaway success of the exorcist a couple years later i mean i think right, that well, was like a cultural phenomenon my mom this, said this made it possible in a lot of ways because it's yeah I it was so yeah. great it um it was what was the I, um, that movie always felt flat with me i watched that and i was like ah, oh, you know whatever like i think if you're not religious it lacks some of the horror the exorcist like, yeah the exorcist is just like ah oh, that's not real that doesn't right. scare me right you know, well I, you know at the time you know most everybody was pretty religious i mean I mean, it was a more religious yeah. time than it is now. Sometimes I think it's a less religious time now, and sometimes I don't. I don't know. It seems... When I was young, when I saw it, it, it scared the crap out of me. That was that was terrifying. Um, and I mean, it's 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 got some scenes, you know, with you know that are that are pretty, um, you know, over the top. I mean, the scene with the crucifix. well, there's some gory, graphic, gross outs. It's pretty extreme. You know what movie on the same, actually similar to The Exorcist, and I think along with those movies influenced Ghostbusters, which is one of my favorite movies ever, is uh, and, and this movie, Poltergeist, sucks. We went back and watched that. I was like, this movie sucks. This, <laughs> it this has a few really good scenes. But it has overall, a couple of memorable scenes. But it's me like, too, but... It scared the crap out of me when I was a little kid. My my kids wanted to watch it, and obviously the baby was hiding under blankets while it was going on. But you know they liked it. But I was watching. I was like, man, this this movie's hard to watch. Like, this is just not not a good movie. It's talking about those couple of different horror movies has reminded me, and this came up in my mind last night. I watched The Cabin in the Woods. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. Yeah, yeah, I really like Cabin in the Woods. It's really really good. I gave it like a nine. A couple of the elements of the movie made me dock it a little bit in terms of how good I thought it was. But I was thinking about the whole movie is a play on the intellectualization of horror movies, which is... Well, it's also only funny if you've seen a lot of horror movies. Well, yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm not a big horror movie guy, but I totally got it. I got what they were riffing on. You know, like I understood what was happening. But it's not just a pair. It's not just parodying them. It actually uses elements of the things people talk about in academic discourse when discussing horror films. And like literally Scream, Scream try to do on, that too? Scream, Scream does that, but Scream does that from like the audience's perspective, like the audience commenting on horror films. And it's it's meta, totally meta. But this is meta to the level of, you know, there are people that write books about how horror movies are a cathartic sacrifice of the young 
you know, that we like to watch to sort of uh, reveal our own, our own, uh, to, to expurge like our own sins and things like that. And I'm like, basically that what I'm talking about here is why do horror movies get so much intellectual discourse about them? Like, why are people so comfortable and why is there so much literature of people talking in smart ways about horror movies? You don't do that about romance movies, right? Mm. Like romance movies kind of scratch a similar basic urge of people. Right, which is like your know, eroticism or, or or romance or whatever. This kind of scratches the urge of like the the fear of fears. Mm-hmm. Why does that get intellectualized so much when other genres of film don't? I think science fiction does. I think science fiction you get, get a lot of people talking very intelligently about it, but that kind of makes sense to me. Why horror? Why is it singled out? Like Get Out is a very smart film that's saying all kinds of really smart stuff about about society and about filmmaking and why is that so common in horror? Why is it so meta? It's almost because like maybe because it is so shocking to hold together a horror movie, whereas you, you like with a romance, you don't. I, you, you just have them happy at the end, and everyone walks away okay with it. There's but nothing. Would you have a lot of fun analyzing the psychology of like why people need what they need in a romance film, the same as you could as why do they need what they need in a horror movie? I mean, it's, it seems like you. Could I don't know. I think the reason of... people need things in a romance film is pretty straightforward. Right. Would you? I, I think that's you know, what I was saying. You would think that the same sort of base urges would lie at the root of horror. But horror well, no, no, no. Is a, reason... a romance film is about safety and comfort for a lot of people. Right. And that's that's a polar. No, no one no it's one a, has it's to a, explain it's, why they like a, a romance film. But you, you have to explain why you like something that scares you and you know could, you know, lead but some sort of you couldn't you intellectualize the things that you need for comfort the same way that you intellectualize the thing? I mean, that says a ton about you and about society in the same sort of way, right? Sure. You, you get that in certain romance films. The when Harry Met Sally. And, yeah. When Harry Met Sally is a very funny, very smart romance film, but I've never heard anybody intellectualize the film in any way. Uh, what's a, that Christmas I movie? That. Love Actually? Yes. People yeah. rhapsodize about that movie. How much they like it, but they don't tell you what it says about current society, right? I mean, that's not, it's weird. Because it doesn't. I think horror, even even like B horror is still, you know, like kind of hitting a... You go watch, you go, we we did Godzilla, right? We we did a movie about, we did a podcast about Godzilla and you get into like fear of nuclear, of nuclear Armageddon and technology out of control and stuff like that. And you you, automatically, right away, getting into these interesting conversations about what people fear. Right. And I, and I think that that's what a horror film, if it's good, it's it's tapping it like, you know, Rosemary's Baby is definitely tapping into, you know, feminism and the patriarchy. And, and there, there, there are some political elements to this. And that okay. who is the first final girl in horror? You know, the trope of the generally final accepted is Jamie Lee Curtis, Jamie Lee Curtis. Right. But that's 10 years after this. Isn't Rosemary kind of the final girl in this in, in a sort of way and sort of centering the female, centering the female really character? Survive. Rosemary does not like she does not walk away. She walks away broken, like transformed it's, in a negative way. You know, she, is it is it is it though, or does she achieve agency at the end? She she loses everything. Her independence. She loses. You know, like she. You know, like she she oh, could yeah. have away. She she gave all that up. She she was so broken that she gave up. You know what she does at the end? And like I said, this is more manifest in the book. But she she accepts the role as the mother of this antichrist so that she can influence the antichrist and influence the future and mm-hmm. if you think about it that's her accepting the woman mm-hmm. a woman's traditional role in history which is to be behind the throne influencing people not trying to be the face of things 
So that would be a definite loss. But then I don't know, maybe it's saying, maybe it's an argument that that's a, that's a power for women. I could see it either way. Right. Don't, don't you also have to be kind of in a slasher film to be a final girl? And like, only yeah, I agree. I agree. Yes, yeah. I agree. But I guess what I'm saying is maybe centering a woman, although it would be Night of Living. No, Night of Living Dead is the first final girl, right? Isn't George Romero? That's about this time. That's in the late that's 60s. That's this year. That's 68. That was. Oh, um, no, it's not. No, it's not. A, it's. I, I take it back. Spoiler alert for Night of Living Dead, but it's not a woman who's the last person alive. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So that's not that's not true. I think there is a woman who's left at the end of the movie, but it's actually a black guy. And that's part of what they're talking about there. But again, you could sit there and intellectualize Night of the Living Dead in a way that you can't do with Love Actually. Why? I'm fascinated by why that is. But anyway, I wanted to talk about how impressive this movie is from a filmmaking standpoint. There are so many callbacks and pieces of foreshadowing in the movie that are really impressive from a technical mm -hmm. viewpoint and even things they don't explain like why is the closet important because there's a secret well they do kind of get into that at the they, end. they get into it eventually yeah. secret door and that's by the way one of my favorite tropes in movies and scooby-doo is secret passages i just any <laughs> anything with the secret passage you've you got me like i just when i was a little kid i think i was about seven we went on this trip up to new england and my parents took me to the house of the seven gables from um, nathaniel hawthorne and we did a tour where they showed us like the secret passages to go through the building and stuff. And I think I've been fascinated with secret passage. I probably was into the secret passages, but I think there was a trap door in Castle Grayskull that might've been my first secret passage. But One other random, random question to throw out here to you guys. The way the movie resolved at the end, they don't show the baby. Right. Do you right. think it's better to not show that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I, you're missing, you're missing a you trick. It could be really cool to see like a demon baby. I'm very curious what the demon baby looks like. <laughs> but but much much in the way that I preferred the Empire Strikes Back version of Boba Fett, you you can show too much. You can want you can leave people wanting more in a movie, and I think that's the way to go. I, they would never do that today. There are no I, supernatural I things that happen in this movie, right? It, it's it's all kind of implied there there's no well they hex people right i mean they put a heck oh but oh i wanted to mention um the guy donald Baumgartner, the guy that has the part in the play that he steals the play oh, from blindness, and then right. she she calls him on the phone did you guys catch who's on the phone when she calls it's yep. tony curtis from spartacus yep it is oh. and they didn't tell her in advance and they didn't tell mia farrow oh by the way there's more to say about mia farrow for goodness sake but anyway they didn't tell mia farrow who she was talking to on the phone. So the confused look on her face is her going, I know this voice. Who is this guy? Is that, is that Tony Curtis? <laughs> like, it's just like, is that who that was? Talking? I didn't catch that. Yeah. 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 I that was pretty funny. Yeah. We mentioned that Sharon Tate is in the film, although I didn't catch her. I looked afterwards. It's this movie is Charles Grodin's first appearance. I don't know if you guys yes. noticed that. You know, I, I, it was so it's his first big movie. Yeah. It's his first movie with a speaking part, I think. I think it's his first film. He's in a bunch of TV stuff before this. Okay. When I looked at the when I looked at the filmography, but but it is so hard to take Charles Grodin seriously. It is just, really, it really is. He shows up early, and you could just kind of see him in profile for a second. And I said to my wife, I was like, "Is that Charles Grodin?" And she's like, "Who's Charles Grodin?" I'm like, "Okay, never mind." But you know, from the Great Muppet Caper and Beethoven and Midnight Run, and <laughs> I think he's been retired for over twenty years. So yes, oh, he, he's Charles he Grodin. He passed away. Passed away pretty young, actually. Uh, but he retired twenty years ago, and I know he's passed since then. Could be. He, he definitely stepped away from movies. And what did you all think of know. the necrophilia comment? 
like we're trying to like we try to keep this kind of general audiences because oh, so we okay. didn't talk about the rapes no it's fine it's fine we didn't talk well yeah about i actually meant to ask if if we could even say the word rape because, no no we can't we can. I mean, we're assuming grown-ups we try not to be we're assuming everybody's a grown-up we try not to be explicit and there's no reason that we can't talk about something like that but i'd like to run it through the lens of what was it like for people watching in 1968 to me in 2023 i'm like that husband raped his wife. Right. Right. right? And it was just so he, casually I mean, like yeah. dismissed. And she's just like, oh, that's a bummer. Oh, and he was just, he was <laughs> just like, like, you know, I guess now I know what it's like to be a necrophiliac. You know, it's like, yeah. it's, he's yeah. kind of turned on. What's that like? That, that's Honestly, like, knowing what you know about Roman Polanski as well. Oh, makes my God. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's like, it, it's it's that creepy feeling you get book, watching a Tarantino. The book touches life. Do you think life is imitating? Do you think? I mean, obviously, I think the Manson thing, unless Manson was thinking about Rosemary's Baby, is just a coincidence, right? But is life kind of imitating art when Polanski? Because that happens in the book, by the way. Ira Levin wrote the marital rape scene with the drugs. That happens in the book, hundred percent. Is that somehow happening because of his experience with making this movie or something? I I don't. What what ended up happening to him later in life? Well, I mean, quaaludes were a really popular party drug in New York in in the seventies and even into the eighties. Maybe I'm very naive about drugs, but what is party about quaaludes? Quaaludes seem like they would not be any fun at a party. That, that seems like that would kill the party, but I, I don't know. Well, I kind of view the definition of party drugs as you know, it had the intended effect with Roman Polanski's wife. I mean, yeah, was, yeah. was was that Quaaludes though in the in the movie though? Is, is that no, no? I don't think it's meant to be Quaaludes. It's no, but with Roman Polanski and the thirteen year old girl, girl, it was explicitly oh, Quaaludes. Oh, oh, it was right. probably something that Abe Saperstein gave them because he's a real he's a real piece of work. The doctor that's involved in this, who by the way is the guy from Trading Places. Did you guys notice that? No, oh, I haven't yes. seen Trading Places. In a long it's time, the, it's one of the two older men. You're one right. of the two old guys. Yeah, because I was looking, I was like, oh, who is that actor? And then I. <laughs> Had to look it up. So, yes, right. we we kind of talked about this before, but I had heard the story about how Woody Allen's uh, uh, Woody Allen's son he always believed is actually Frank Sinatra's kid. I didn't realize Mia Farrow was married to Frank Sinatra, yeah. and that Frank Sinatra divorced her during the production oh, of this. She was really upset yeah. about it. So, well, yeah, he forbade her from making the movie, and she went ahead and made it, and they got divorced. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think she had some unresolved issues with Frank Sinatra, basically. So I think it's even more likely that the kid is actually Frank Sinatra's kid. That seems entirely plausible, especially when you look at the kid. Important stuff. What did you guys think about the pixie cut? Not a fan. It was interesting. It was uh, it was definitely there was a purpose to it. Um, women started cutting their hair like that after the movie. Um, yep. It became a cultural phenomenon. Honestly, I think it looks great on her. I think she's also gorgeous, but she, I think a woman who's I think a woman who's in really, really beautiful has a really, really beautiful face can carry a pixie cut. But I think not having a pixie cut is always an improvement on having a pixie cut, if you see what I mean. It's like what was the significance like, of the movie? Usain Bolt can probably still outrun me while he's got like a chain tied around his leg or something, but that he he's faster when he doesn't, you know. Like it, Mia Farrow is a beautiful woman. She still looks pretty with that cut, but I, it, it, it's better when she doesn't, you know. I don't mind a pixie cut. I think it quite attractive. Well, that's fine. That's that's to each his own. Yeah, absolutely. But in the movie, what what do you think it signified with her cutting off her hair and and uh... women's liberation? I think uh, uh, there's a little bit of women's lib, but you know, also story wise, uh, it was a warning sign to the cult because she had stopped taking her drugs and was starting to come out of the oh yeah, it actually the fugue. Story. Yeah, that's yeah. right. 
she could have just pretended to be continuing to take the drugs, right? If she'd been... Yeah, I gather in the book, she does a little bit more of that, where she, uh, to get away, she hoards the pills that have been um, given to her and grinds She runs up. away. She yeah. runs away in the book. She goes and get a, gets a cabin and stays in a cabin for a month by herself. Yeah, but at the very end where she's getting the pills, she like hoards those pills, then grinds them up and gives them to the woman who's watching her. And then you, when yeah, she falls asleep, she escapes to find her baby. Oh, yeah. maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that does happen. That's right. Oh, we didn't talk about Ruth Gordon. Ruth Gordon won a Best Supporting Actress for this film. Well deserved. She was really good. She is good, but you know what? You know what I know her from. It was bugging me all through the movie. Is oh, oh, Harold and Maude. Harold right? and Maude. Yeah, like yeah. I, as soon as I looked at the filmography, that's like, my oh, my brain course. was spinning. I couldn't. I couldn't yeah. figure yeah, yeah, out why. Yeah. I yes, yes. I had the same experience, which again is something you watch and you're just like, they the seventies, like the late sixties and into the seventies, was this like renaissance in film i mean they really just did a bunch of really amazing cutting edge awesome stuff in american movies at that time i just it was a bit like that at the end of the 90s we got a nice pulse but there hasn't been anything like that since i don't think but, well, this was solidly in the 60s this came out in yeah, what's yeah, yeah. well i think i think the traditional year where american cinema really changed is 64 so i think it's from 64 to about 75 you've just got some amazing stuff and then post jaws it's all people making money but it's also, there's still some great movies but Spielberg ruined film forever everything is now has to have this this incredible polish I, i'm not but the funny thing is is some of spielberg's movies are some of my favorite movies right oh there no it's he's not, excellent he's actually kind of like i yeah. i 100 agree with martin scorsese when he says that marvel movies have absolutely obliterated what's left of movies I'm done but i love the avengers i really like the avengers that was a great movie and i, I really I, like a couple yeah. i like a couple of the marvel movies but in general like Ant-Man, whatever the heck the last one was, I was just like, what am I doing with my life? Like, I I feel like commercialization of movies has ruined them more than any individual director or franchise itself. I mean, the second that you decide we're going to make 50 movies revolving around this, there's no way you can keep the quality up for all of them. You're, you're just turning yeah. it into a movie mill. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. At a certain and, point, your, your great idea starts working against itself. You know, it's... I mean, as a kid, I was I I when I'd read comic books, I'd be like, how could they make a movie out of this? There's no way this could be cool on the screen and also have the comic book feel. But you know, they managed. But to you were correct because you were reading X Men books, right? <laughs> and well, oh wait, wait, we never commented on the vodka blush. What did you guys think? I'm I, actually turning um, pink. I'm actually blushing. <laughs> you are. That's interesting. Yeah. Maybe I have too much grenadine in it or something, but it's it's uh, it's got a nice smell. It's got a nice initial taste, but the aftertaste is uh, is not working for me. I got a lot of lime juice in mine. It's very lime juice forward for me. I did I, I did just I did just enough grenadine to color it to get that shade that you saw in the film. If you see that, like I wanted that color, but that was all the grenadine I did. I can't taste the grenadine at all. Yeah, yours is grenadine. That looks like a, a glass of grenadine. Um, There's a little grenadine in there, uh, but okay. But yeah. it looks, but yours yeah. looks very red. Yeah, I can't um, comment at all. And I did, I had a lot of rosemary in the shaker. And I honestly, in hindsight, I think they just said in the ingredients to put in rosemary because of the film. I don't think the people in the film have any rosemary. They don't. It's probably an affectation, but you know. I think it's, I mean, honestly, can you taste something like that in a cocktail? I don't really. You actually have a sprig of rosemary that you're drinking. Rosemary's 
So you can smell it, but mine is just mixed in. So I don't, I don't actually think it had much effect. That may be making it a little bit more bitter for me too. I wanted to talk about what an influence that this book and a couple of other things around the same time, this, this book especially, is a huge influence, I think, on Stephen King. This is coming out about oh, yeah. four, four years before, three or four years before he wrote Carrie. And that I think this, I think this, I think this, this book and this book and film and like how smart it is, but it's also a horror movie. I think that's what Stephen King is trying to do. He's trying to write Ira Levin. Ira Levin doesn't write horror otherwise, for the most part. I don't think any of his other books are, are horror. But Stephen King is trying to write an Ira Levin novel every time he writes his books, some of which are closer than others to being good. And that's why he deals, I think that's probably what inspired him to deal with feminism in so many of his like better books. I think actually most of Stephen King's good books have that as a theme, like Dolores Claiborne. Dolores Claiborne, right. Yeah, uh, I think those are two of his best, and I think that's a really uh, those have that theme forward. What's uh, funny is Levin doesn't write about horror, but every one of his books involves a uh, conspiracy. I know there's other books of his that I'm familiar with, but I can't think of what they are off the top of my head. But, but what I was talking about with the Stephen King thing is that Hutch is a character trope that Stephen King uses in about 75 percent of his books, where there's a totally good professor figure that knows everything and can help everybody, and like. And there's like Glenn Bateman in the stand. There's there's a character like that in a whole bunch of his stuff. And I re I really think this was like a big influence on his work. They get killed about halfway through. That, that is a horror trope. I that may have started with Rosemary's Baby. Is that? Oh, that's a good question. You mean like the professor that? No, no, that's a science fiction trope. I, oh. The professor that knows everything. But this the professor that knows everything in the science fiction movies. In, in the Stephen King books and in this one, he's a force for good. Well, my biggest surprise and one of the only things that surprised me in watching the film, having read the book and really, like I said, very faithful adaptation. I think it's, it's like point for point almost, almost the same length. You almost spend the same amount of time reading the book as you do watching the film because it's a two and a half hour movie. It's not short. Uh, my biggest surprise is that Sharon Tate is in this movie. We talked about this already, but Sharon Tate being in this movie and then being murdered by Satanists about a year later. That's that's mind blowing to me. That is creepy and like rhymes in a way that real life doesn't usually rhyme. I, I, I didn't even really think about it until just now while we were sitting here doing the podcast. How weird that is. That's my biggest surprise. I think it's a doozy, but it's kind of a waste because we already talked about it. For me, it was just how political it was. I, I, I remember I, I came in thinking it was going to be a campy, campy horror that was, you know, kind of Vincent Price-esque. Yeah, it was definitely making a statement. I don't know if it was a positive statement about women in general, and uh, but it was, you know, there was a lot going on there in terms of clearly the the gaslighting, you know, there, there's a patriarchy kind of keeping her down. She tries to break free and the patriarchy brings her back in. I, I, I didn't realize just how political well yeah i don't know if i know what you're saying i don't know if political maybe quite, political's not the right word it's um it's commentary you know like to what extent it's like social commentary, commentary right social right. commentary yes right? like it's not really it, it i think the interesting thing about horror is that it usually doesn't come to any political conclusions it's just these are the issues here right. deal with it these right. are, this is what's happening in society well i don't know i don't know what i don't know what you want to say about it but here we go it's like right. when i was talking about how she ends up accepting the woman's role as the power behind the throne 
Well, I think that's the, the book. The, the movie, really the movie does that, but I don't know what it advocates in terms of that. I don't know what it does. That doesn't come through in the movie, though, right? I mean, I you know, like you I just... think it does. I mean, I don't know. Well, you would different people have different takes. I think it's in there. I, I think the text has that, but maybe, maybe I don't know. Yeah. It seemed to me like that was in the text of the film as well. But then again, the texts are inextricable if you've read the book. Anything surprise you, Chris? Oh, the false advertising for sure. I mean, it says it's Rosemary's baby, but it's hardly in the movie. No, um, my... my... <laughs> My yeah. biggest surprise by far kind oh. of is into Kevin. Uh, I got to interrupt. I got to interrupt you with an anecdote that I'll lose if I don't think of it. Sorry. So, sure, so when, I, when I was a kid, did you guys ever watch Family Feud? Yeah, sometimes. So they, they, they used to do this thing at the end of the movie where you got two chances to get all the points. Uh, you, did, you selected two members from your family to go up and answer questions by themselves to get enough points to win the game. You needed like 100 points. And this one time, the first person came up and got all the questions right, and, and they were done. But they didn't tell the second family member. So the second family member came up, and the guy and Ray Cohn just made up questions to ask the second family member. And one of them was like, what is the ugliest child you've ever seen? And the guy was like, uh, Rosemary's baby. <laughs> That's a really good answer, actually. It's, it was a terrific <laughs> answer. Yeah, I was like... I was, my my answer kind of rhymes with Kevin's actually. I, I have always thought of this as as a bit of a, a horror movie, mm -hmm. which are not known for being particularly well made. Uh, so my biggest surprise by far was just how well made this movie was. I mean, Roman Polanski put a lot of thought into every shot. Uh, I think we've mentioned a little bit about the callbacks, how how every scene set it's, sets up another scene. Uh, it's very avant-garde too, right? Like the camera yes. work is avant-garde. The, the 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 music we didn't mention the music except to say the guy died. Extremely crazy atonal jazz that's going on. Like it feels like a modern movie in a lot of ways. Yes, it does. It, or it, or like a, or like something from French or Italian cinema from the sixties. I, I don't know. For a movie made in 1968 to feel this modern, like you could release it in, in a theater today and maybe cut a little bit out to try and get it under two hours. I, I think, I think you would, yeah. Yeah. You'd have but, to. I don't think you should, but I think you would have to. But looking at other movies made in the same era, it doesn't feel anything like those. It, it drags a little bit in some places, I think, to the modern eye. This movie didn't have to be this good, and it was, and it really makes yeah, it very out. watchable, very palatable. I'm with you. I, I found myself completely engrossed it was did you know where the movie was going you, you said that i mean did, did you know where the film was going as you went? i thought she might kill the child at the end so i wasn't sure where it was going to end but i knew i thought the baby there was sacrificed I, I mean i, I well okay. i thought that at the beginning i was like oh it's going to be you know the the antichrist and then i fell into her thinking that it was going to be sacrificed and um and I think they kind of do that by forcing the perspective through her. You don't think outside of that. And so I kind of felt, I went back on my thinking and yeah, but then when, when I realized what was going on, I was like, oh yeah, of course, of course. That's what I thought initially. But yeah, I guess that was not really a twist for me, but, but it was. No, so this is, this is something that surprised me actually when I first read the novel and I didn't mention it because I read the novel, like I said, a couple of months ago, but I thought the ambiguity, I thought it would be like Total Recall. I thought the movie would end with the ambiguity of was she crazy or not, mm. right? Because all through the movie, you could read the movie as being like, she's paranoid. She made up all this stuff. But the end of the film and the end of the book are both very explicit. No, 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 no. She's right. There, there's, there's Satanists. Like they, they take off their hoods and tell her exactly what's going on at the end. Right. And I thought would it was going to be happier with one of the other endings. Would you be happier if it was more ambiguous? Maybe because 
I don't know. That's a really good question because if you look at it, it's a little corny, that last scene where you can see everybody in the room, right? It's a corny scene. It's corny on purpose. It's what he's going for. Very much like I've always said about a Marvel movie is like, you better do this with a wink because this is stupid. This is a stupid concept. Yeah, having a room full of elderly Satanists is a dumb thing to have in your movie. So you kind of funny though, honestly. You could it is kind of funny. It is kind of, but you better and be they do aware a little bit. when the woman's rocking it too hard and she like leaves. Right, and sticks her that's, tongue it's out. funny. Right? That's a funny. Scene. And she sticks her tongue out at her when she yeah. goes. Yes, like, yes, she they, caught that. They, they know what they're doing. They're winking at you. Thank God, because yeah. if they weren't, you'd be rolling on the floor laughing at them. You, you want yeah, to make sure everybody's easier. laughing with you and not at you with that kind of a scene. So I think they did pretty well with that. Um, I'm kind of persuaded that it's better to to let you know because too much ambiguity in this movie where you're I building so. up that kind of paranoia I, would be too much. I may be This may be colored by the fact that I watched The Cabin in the Woods and I would have liked ambiguity about the ending of Cabin in the Woods. That would have been great if you didn't know what happened in the last three minutes, if it just ended. <laughs> I would have been happier with much that. Better movie, I think. Yeah, I think that that was the reason why I docked that movie from being a ten to a nine is that I thought that ending was I didn't like the ending. So I think we all decided we all had pretty good surprises about this film. Nobody nobody got exactly what they expected out of it, right? What are we going to do about voting for this? Apparently, I'm ruled out because I'm the one that chose this. Although I hadn't seen it, so I think I think wait, we have three people, so I think we just put it up to a vote. Yeah, like everybody's usually... vote could just count, right? Absolute classic. The Exorcist would not exist. That that uh, that whole the Omen. The Omen. The Omen exist. would not exist. You know that that whole genre would not exist. And those are some of my favorite. All the sequels wouldn't exist. <laughs> well, I guess there's that. But nobody uh, would have been afraid that Dungeons and Dragons players were actually summoning demons if they hadn't watched this. Uh, I think. Ooh, that could have changed Kevin's life. <laughs> <laughs> My life would have been so different if this movie didn't exist. This definitely left a mark on on cinema, on the zeitgeist. It clearly is a classic, in my view. Okay. I didn't really like watching this movie, but I respect the hell out of it. And I think it's really well done. Yeah, I, I, it changed cinema. So... Yes, it's the classic. <laughs> so it gets your vote despite the lack of personal enjoyment in watching it. Yeah, I can't say I really enjoyed watching this movie. I, in fact, I had to watch it in segments. I couldn't sit down and watch it wire to wire. Oh. I, I just couldn't. Oh, interesting. I ended up watching it in segments because I did the first half hour on the elliptical and then watched the rest of the movie with my wife. But it wasn't because I was bored or anything. It just that's just the way it I, I was fully out. engrossed, and that maybe that can add that as my addendum to the surprise that. That surprised me how I was drawn into it. So you have a love of horror that surpasses most people I know. <laughs> but what's your what's your horror thing? Slashers or psychological horror or what's your I, I just like well crafted horror. It can be well, then you're gonna then you're gonna like this. Yeah, I right. think I think you'd like right. this. Yeah. Definitely. There there has to be, yeah, there has to be a well like the screenplay is amazing. Uh yeah, the production, every everything pulled off very well. I mean, it's so for me. I kind of had a similar reaction to Chris. I wasn't gripped by the film. I enjoyed. I, I appreciated the film all the way through. I was like, "This is a this is a good movie." I mentioned Night of the Living Dead earlier. When I watched that the first time, which was I saw it when I was a little kid, but I I saw it again recently, four or five years ago, and I was just gripped. I watched the whole movie from start to finish, and I was like, "I don't want to stop watching this movie." This movie. I watched The Blob with my dad about two years ago, and just watched it start to finish. I was like, "This is a great gripping movie all the way through." This one did not do that for me. I could appreciate 
So I'm so I'm saying old horror movies can get me. But this one didn't quite scratch that itch for me for some reason, but I still really liked it. I actually really enjoyed the book. I read the book in a very short sitting. I mean, I just kind of didn't want to put the book down. So yeah, that surprised me. You said you finished that that, that quickly. How long? Yeah, is it, was, it was a it was a breezy read. It was a breezy. I recommend it. I mean, it's like reading a Stephen King book, except. I don't want to put down Stephen King, but a little bit smarter, a little more highbrow, a little more highbrow. Now, Stephen King is a very smart guy. I don't mean to put him down. He writes middlebrow because he's trying to grab people that aren't really in, aren't quite ready for. It's a pulpy element, yeah. Oh, like a, a like a less coked up Stephen King. <laughs> well, I don't think he was all that. Coked I'm talking up about soft drinks, obviously. <laughs> I'm talking about Carrie. I'm talking about I'm talking about the Carrie era, and I don't think he was coked up at, at all when he was doing oh, Carrie. Anyway, I recommend. I would recommend the book very much. I found the book to be very, maybe maybe the the movie seemed kind of a little more humdrum to me because I'd already read the book. It you has know, to be I, a good I experience reading the book and watching the movie that close together. It's, yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah, yeah it was pretty close together. I, and I've done that a few times with the podcast actually, because we've had a couple of things that are books and movies. Like, well, we did two shows for Doctor No, for example. I think that's actually kind of a cool experience. Definitely, always read the book first and then watch the movie. I would say, and I can't think of a counter example. There might be one, but we got three votes. Everybody voted. Votes, in favor. Yeah. Some of us, some of us were a little more. So we basically got, I would say two total votes. Cause Chris and I were some decimal of a vote. Right. <laughs> I think, no, I think it counts as three full total votes. Check, check your spreadsheet. What's the last. Yeah, I, I'd have to, I'd have to, I'm just, I'm just, I don't know whether the um, equivocating that you and I were doing about our votes counts as a full vote. I think it's maybe like 1.7, like 0.75 for each of us and a full for Kevin, but I think anyway, you can chalk it up to the two of us being total contrarians. Devil's advocate, some might say. <laughs> yeah. I had a good time talking about this. I hope you guys did too. I hope the great. listeners enjoyed it. I want to give a shout out to my friends for coming in and doing this for me we'll at last minute. Hey, there you go. <laughs> for those of you who can't see, <laughs> Kevin just did a surfing uh, a surfing gesture, I think, right? Is that what that is? is that the, Hail the Satan. Hail Adrian. Or, that's the one thing where they give it away early in the film, right? He says year one, like wait, like in the middle of the movie. But yes. it's a little bit after the middle of the movie because it is the New Year's party. Yeah, it's but it's but it's before everything else has been revealed. And she has the right. baby in like June. So anyway, for Toasting the Classics, this is Dave MacArthur. I've been Chris Craig. Kevin Doyle. All right. So Stop. everybody, peace right. out. Take care, guys. That's it for episode 91 of Toasting the Classics. For those playing along at home, Get some Hennessy for our discussion of Kanye West's album, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and let us know if anyone is planning to steal your baby and sacrifice it to Satan. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at, at @ractivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics. <laughs>